0: Turn with me to Mark chapter eleven. We'll continue in Mark eleven this morning. And um, last week we we read this text, but we'll read it again because um, we didn't make it too, uh, very far uh, after we considered the healing of blind Bartimaeus. What I want to do this morning is consider three narratives, um, and, and I, I'm not uh, I'm not under any um, illusion that we might make it through all three. So we'll see how far we get, but. Uh, we have the what's commonly called the triumphal entry here in Mark, and then we have Jesus cleansing the temple, and surrounding that episode, if you will, of, of cleansing the temple, you have a cursing of the fig tree and the results of that curse with some subsequent teaching from Jesus. So we'll see how far we get into that teaching, but at least we'll see the narrative in a broad perspective before we start to draw some observations. As I'm reading, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things here. First, um, as you follow along in your text, pay attention to the consistent uh, changes in setting. And, and and here we're thinking about time and place, ways in which Mark draws our attention to the location of things and the time of things, what's taking place. I think that's uh, that'll help us to structure the, the text and to see some of the, the things that bind it all together. Um, and then... Um, And then just pay attention as well to um, those recurrent themes, those repeated, uh, you'll see it in kind of a repetition of vocabulary, simple words, but that we tend to see again and again, both in setting and in other ways. So uh, we'll see what what we find from that. So in Mark 11, verse 1, follow along, if you would, as I read. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. and He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and Thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass it will be done for him therefore i tell you whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses we'll stop there then Let me pray real quick. Lord, I I pray that you would open our eyes as well as we look to to your word, that you would give us understanding and wisdom and insight as we come to this text so that we might understand what it is that you would have us learn concerning prayer and concerning faith and concerning forgiveness, concerning your purposes and what you brought to pass so many years ago through the coming of Christ to Jerusalem this one final time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look then at the text, I, I, I suggested to you as I read it to, to listen and pay attention to the settings, the time and the place in which these things took place. So let me ask you, what did you notice about the setting generally and then more specifically? What kind of things did you notice about the place and time in which these events took place? Yeah, so there's a what, what you could say is there's a consistent change in setting, but it, it, ra- it her- occurs at a rather rapid clip, kind of between as you're going from place to place in this general region. And Mark is consistently drawing our attention to the specific places, as, as Matt pointed out, that they're going in and out of Jerusalem over the course of a couple of days. In fact, I... Uh, the titles aren't that meaningful for these lessons, but I do put titles on my notes, and this one I called Two Days in Jerusalem, so... Uh, what else did we notice about the setting? Anything? Yeah, I mean, th- these are the things that I'm, the details, just looking at the details and, and being observant. This is what I'm looking for. So. The the very first thing is they they are approaching Jerusalem. They come near it, and uh, he draws attention to Bethpage and and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And um, why? Well, Bethany is going to be kind of like a home base, if you will, as he's here near Jerusalem. If we could, if if you if you look at the maps ever in the Bible, um, at the back of the Bible, uh, those aren't inspired maps, but they are accurate, generally, and. Um, you'll see that between Jericho, which is where the, uh, the events, if you remember verse 46 of the last chapter, chapter 10, they come into Jericho and then they leave Jericho. It's just this very, like, he entered Jerusalem and then when he departed, there's not, you don't find out what happened in Jericho. They just go in and go out. But it does draw our attention to where they are. And if you were to look at the maps, you would see that there's not a lot of space between Jericho and Jerusalem. Uh, we even thought about that last week when we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan on, in the sur- service how this parable took place on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the only two little villages that are on this way, as far as if you look at a zoomed-in map that you're, you're going to see on most maps are Bethany and Bethpage. Right? They're just two little villages. They're much nearer to Jerusalem than to Jericho, It's some 17 miles between the two, Jericho and Jerusalem. So that's about a day's journey if you're walking. And... Um, and, but then Bethany would be maybe like two miles, you know. So you're you're pretty close. You can walk there in about an hour. Uh, and there's some elevation, and so there's some other challenges that would make it maybe a longer journey. But you can see how Jesus might set up kind of um, his 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 base in this final week in Bethany, and then during the week he's going to go in and out of Jerusalem. Um, what other things do you see as we if we think about this general then area where they are in the terms of the region that they're at? come to the Mount of Olives, which will be significant later in Mark, especially. Um, But where, as he comes into Jerusalem, where is he going? Where's Carlton? (laughs) The temple. That's right. He's into the temple every every single, in in all of these trips, he goes into the temple. And that temple setting is going to be very key when we think about what's going on in the narrative as Mark Mark, uh, presents this particular series of events. He goes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple uh, the first day, he goes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. The second day, we're actually going to see on the third day next week when we come to it that he goes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. The, the temple is a really key setting in the course of things. We'll, we'll want to ask why that is. Um, and then each day he goes out of Jerusalem. Uh, what about the time? What, how does Mark draw our attention to time? Just a couple of references here. Verse, look at verse 11, and then look at uh, verse 12, and then 19 and 20. It's already late, and then if you look at verse 19, it was evening. Those words are, um, you know, one of the things about English is um, the, the people who, who um, made up the English language <laughs> didn't think, uh, uh, how should we uh, make these words sound like Greek. But opseas um, is late, and opse is evening. And I, I just point that out because the, the similarity in the sound. Uh, you, if you wanted to kind of preserve that, that quality, you'd say it was evening time instead of it was late. Just to kind of... Th- th- those things in, in any kind of narrative, in any kind of literary piece, they do draw our attention to, the, to them in a way where we see there's a connection. That's, that's all I'm getting at, is there's a connection in the mind of the reader who's reading in the, in the Greek, where they say, OK, I, I see that there's like this pattern that's occurring. There's a pattern that's happening. And it does kind of draw my attention to these events. Is sort of like um, each day that passes, there's a series of events that kind of uh, increases the tension, increases the, uh, the, uh, the significance of what's taking place. Um, Things are coming to a head, you might say. And it's kind of structured around the passage of these days. And so you have also, after, you know, it was late and they went out. And then the following day, in verse 12, and then the same thing, the same pattern happens in verse 19 and 20. It was evening, so they went out. And then in the morning, they, uh, they start their way back into Jerusalem. So day by day, they're coming into Jerusalem. That does really structure the passage and kind of draws these narratives together for our consideration. So let's look then closely at this Jerusalem entry, the, the first 11 verses. And someone, just in your own words, and say a few, uh, four, three or four sentences, summarize the events. What happens? How, what gets, the, the, gets it all going? How do things unfold? How does the, the little narrative climax and come to a resolution? Anyone want to take a stab at it? Hetty, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That cursing of the fig tree when we come to it, I'll make make point of the, the, it's it's troubled a number of interpreters. And um, let me, I'll come to that. We'll come to that today, I promise. Let's deal with uh, deal with the first the, the, the what you, you use a great summary, and it's also it's interesting to just draw upon one experience in terms of just traditions that we keep in uh in the christian calendars not just in the catholic church you know we we recognize palm sunday on our calendars broadly in society and um you know i preached this text in my old church on palm sunday um one year um i was asked to preach on that particular sunday i said well i'll preach mark 11. makes you know we we remember these things and as Chris from OFBC once quipped to me, is like, you can only preach so many Palm Sunday ser- uh, sermons before it gets old. So, you know, he just moved on and gave up doing it. But, but um, you know, even when I was a kid, we'd get the kids all dressed up, and we'd come out, and we'd put down the... It was cute, you know. Uh, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Everyone's dressed up and putting down palm branches and things like that. We do those things. And so it, that tradition... Um, Puts uh, kind of imparts to us a, a sense of what this text is all about. So even before we come to the text and we think, okay, oh, we're going to read about the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, um, we have in our mind uh, something we imagine. You know, this is going to be. You know, what this is going to be like. Um, at the same time, we want to make sure that we follow as we look at the text. How does Mark present it? Mark does present it quite differently than Matthew and Luke and John. All, all four Gospels have it. But um, Mark doesn't draw as much attention to certain features that you'll see in, in Matthew. Um, so, for instance, Matthew will highlight the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Let me turn there briefly. To kind of draw attention to why, why this account uh, is, very, um, is very important. What it should signify the people of Israel. In in Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet wrote these words in verse 9 and following. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you have this kind of contrast there in the prophet's picture. The, the Prophets often painted sort of enigmatic pictures, very puzzling pictures. And here you have this contrast. On the one hand, look, your king's coming. Rejoice. This is your salvation coming with your king. On the other hand, there's a, it's a humble picture. He's coming on a donkey, on a colt, on the fold of a donkey. And God will go on to speak through the prophet in Zechariah 9 about what he's going to accomplish. He's going to, for instance, at the end of verse 10. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He talks about restoring the people of Israel, but he also talks about uh, bringing in many others um, into that uh, into that salvation. As he's going to be, you look right above what I just read in in verse ten. He shall speak peace to the nations. So in Zechariah nine, you've got this picture of this king who comes humbly, but he is your king bringing salvation. You're supposed to rejoice. He's got a mission to the nations but it's also one of restoration for God's people. I think what, what one thing we want to appreciate is that what Zechariah is speaking about there in chapter 9, he, though it, it occupies just a handful of verses, it really does encompass a long stretch of time from our perspective. 2,000 years and counting, right? So um, he is bringing in the nations, but it's just, all of these things are just not the way that they might have expected um, and there's a later tradition that arises in the Jewish community after Christ you know, it, it, where they, they actually made what Zechariah said, they interpreted it very conditionally. Basically like, if Israel is prepared, then the Messiah will come to them on the clouds, like Daniel 7 says. But if they're not prepared for him, then he'll come in a humble way on a donkey. Um, that can't be right because he's already fulfilled these, these things, but, but they made it very conditional to try and explain, well, what, why is Zechariah picturing him in such a humble way? Anyway, go ahead. Mm. Yeah, you're gonna, we're going to see that in all four Gospels, this, this humiliation uh, in his crucifixion. Um, but the thieves, the, the, Luke will certainly draw attention to them. John will draw attention to them. They, they draw attention in different ways. Um, can't remember off the top of my head how Matthew and Mark do but yeah mm-hmm. yeah So are you asking, um, how do we explain this stunning reversal in such a short space of time? Okay. Well, uh, there's a few things. First is, we, you know, we want to be aware that there's there's the way in which the gospel writer presents the events, and there's all of the details that the gospel writer chooses not to convey to us. This doesn't mean that the gospel writer is being false. It means that he's drawing our attention to specific things. But like if we... If we were to imagine ourselves in the event, when, for instance, we might find, you know, we, we don't know exactly what motivated the people to treat Jesus like they did on, his, on the road to Jerusalem. It may be that what they were doing was a common ritual that they did for pilgrims who were coming into Jerusalem just, be, you know, as Passover is approaching. They're getting ready for Passover, they're coming in, and they may be doing all sorts of things. And what they're doing here in the words that they say, Hosanna they're quoting from Psalm 118. And so one, you might be there, if you were a Jew living at that time in Jerusalem, you might think nothing of what they just did. You think, well, this is the way we treat pilgrims. But Mark, you know, if that's the case, we don't know that for sure. If, Mark, if that's the case, then Mark is drawing attention to what they're saying as, as if to say they're speaking better than they know. What they're, what they're doing is proper but maybe they don't even realize how proper it is on the other hand we did see evidence of blind bartimaeus just prior who does call to jesus and say son of david and people have recognized him as at least you know this great prophet and some have come to acknowledge him as the christ and so maybe there's a bit of that you know you think of the disciples you think of peter even peter has this you know peter and the other disciples have it in their mind somehow like jesus is going to go and he's going to establish the kingdom right so they can't figure out when he keeps talking about the cross and resurrection They don't figure out how that fits but at the very least even after his death and resurrection they, okay I see the resurrection was not a figure of speech they're going to ask him Lord is it this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel they're not thinking about a 2,000 year runway and more they're thinking about a you know like two, let's, get this, let's get this show on the road you've, you've been raised now now's the time so there's a lot of misunderstandings that accrue. So we, we can't get in the minds of all the people. Uh, we just kind of look at what Mark represents to us. But, you know, to exp- if you want to answer that question to explain, like, why, how the sudden turn of events, it, you know, we, we may point out that, you know, they, they, may, not, they may not intend uh, to, you know, to be saying, hey, here's the Christ. They're, they may be just being doing something that was common to do for pilgrims at that time. Um, and yet Mark is showing that they speak better than they know. That's kind of the idea. Because that, that helps to make sense of it, perhaps. And then one other thing I might add to it is any, any, in any narrative, uh, even, even in historical, this is historical narrative. Right. You know, I, I call it a narrative without meaning to suggest that, you know, that there's anything fictional about it. It's fully historical and true. But in a narrative, you can draw attention to individuals, and you can draw attention to groups. As, as a whole without, without reference to the individuals so that there's a kind of consistency in the presentation, even though we might know that the individuals in any one case may differ, right? So, for instance, if, I, if I'm reading in Mark and I see the Pharisees in one moment and then I see the Pharisees in another moment, I probably can safely assume that we're not t- dealing with the same Pharisees. And yet Mark presents them all as one homogenous group, one single group kind of there's a character development that happens in the Pharisees from time you know from one time to another so again when we think about we tend to think about the people who are laying down their their cloaks and laying down their uh, their palm branches as though it's like the same people the identical people who uh, a few days later are saying crucify him crucify him and maybe some in that crowd are some in that later crowd but more than like, I mean, there's probably a million people coming into Jerusalem that week. More than likely, we're dealing with some different individuals at each place, a lot of different individuals at each place. And So, it's the, the point that I'm trying to get at is the presentation, the way that Mark presents this. He, he does want us to, to see the flip, the sudden change, how shocking it is. But at the same time, when, when we, we, we just say, well, that seems so, so, how could that happen in such a short space of time? When you bring a million people into one place, it can be um, you know, the, the, the mood can shift really suddenly. Um, and so we're going to see that there's this great interest in Jesus early on in the week, and there is then this shifting mood, and we're going to see that the um, certainly the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests have a lot to do with that shifting mood and turning the people against him. Um... Uh, When he when he prophesies the destruction of the temple or when he actually destroyed when it's actually comes to be destroyed. That's gonna be in, that's gonna be about thirty-five years later. So just give you some historical background. The temple gets destroyed the second the, the second time. The first destruction is five eighty-six BC, Nebuchadnezzar, long time ago, relative to these events. The second destruction of the temple that, that endures to this day was in seventy AD. Uh, and that was at the hand of the Romans. But Jesus will prophesy about that event in, um, in texts we're going to come to in short order. When we come to chapter uh, 13, Jesus will foretell the destruction of the temple. You're keying on something really important. I hope everyone else is, is benefiting because I think this is really important. With, with your, the question you're asking is the temple is the key setting here. He keeps coming into Jerusalem, into the temple... And when we begin to see the temple as the key setting, um, thank you. When we see the temple as the key setting, we start to see that Jesus is—he's um, showing something about the temple, and then he's going to—he's going to um, uh, he's gonna prophesy a, uh, in some clearer terms about what's going to happen to the temple. And he's showing something about himself and the proper way of worship in the new era that he's inaugurating, if you will. Um. Oh, okay, yeah. So this is not destroying it per se, but like driving out money changers. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. Curtain was torn. So give you, uh, let's, let's go through a brief history of the temple. Um, and I'll, I'll address all these major points, biblically speaking. So you've got the building of the temple, and this is sometime around uh, 1000 B.C. under Solomon, maybe 950 or something like that. But uh, 1000 B.C., roughly speaking, Solomon builds the first temple. That temple then endures for roughly 500 years, 400 years, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes according to prophe- prophecies from Jeremiah and, and, uh, and others. He comes and he destroys the temple and um, that persists for some 70 years and the people go into exile. After the exile, the people come back and um, they start to rebuild the temple under Ezra Nehemiah, and Nehemiah um, and you can read about that in those books. Um, and they're gonna complete, it's going to take a long time to complete that work, some 40 to 50 years. But they will ultimately rebuild the temple. Uh, it won't be as glorious as it was under Solomon. It'll, the new temple will not be that great, relatively speaking. But the same pattern, the same structure. That temple will then persist to, uh, to 70 A.D. There will be some things that happen that Daniel prophesies about where Gentile rulers will desecrate the temple. And uh, so that if you know Hanukkah, that the holiday that is celebrated uh, by the Jewish people to this day has to do with a time when uh, they revolted against um, this wicked uh, uh, leader, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and um, took back the temple and reconsecrated it. Uh, so that temple then persists, and, and under Herod, who's the ruler, under the, he's under the Romans, but he's the ruler at the time that Jesus is going to die. <coughs> He is engaged in this building project where they're going to make the temple much more magnificent than it was, And so that, that's ongoing at the time of Jesus. Now, Jesus drives out the money changers. There's a question about, does he do this twice during his ministry? because John puts it right at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter two. Uh, I tend to think that that's what happens is that there's a, a, what happened, three, uh, three years roughly between these things, and he, he drives out money changers from the temple. Um, and so we're hearing like at the end of his ministry he comes back into the temple and he's going to do that again and he, uh, you know, he's going to teach in the temple he's going to prophesy about the destruction of the temple then he's going to go to the cross himself and when he's crucified that's when the curtain what you're talking about with the curtain the curtain is torn into from top to bottom Mark will record that we'll come to that at the end of Mark's gospel that curtain will be torn from top to bottom by the Lord essentially is what's being said which is to say that that curtain was meant to serve as a barrier, a separation, where to say you can't come into the presence of God, which is typified in the holy, the the holiest, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was to be. Now that curtain's torn as a way to say Jesus has made, Jesus has broken down that barrier through his death on the cross. And no longer is there a barrier between us and God, which we can't access, except through some chief, some high priest, now we have access to God directly through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of that tearing of the temple curtain. That's right. So in John chapter 2, when Jesus drives out the money changers, they say by what, what sign do you show us by which, by which you do these things? And he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they think he's talking about the physical temple that he's just cleansed. But, the, but John clues us in that he's talking about the temple of his body. This is, has to do a lot with the transition that, we're, that Mark is representing and John also represents the same transition on, uh, taking place. Is that in, under the Old Covenant, the way of worship required people to go to Jerusalem and to go to the temple and offer their sacrifices at various points in the year. And they had to make regular pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, but he's speaking about his own body in the temple. And there's this the, the reason why he speaks of his body as a temple is one, to veil what he's saying. Two, to present his resurrection as a sign by which he proves his authority to do what he's done. And three, to show that he completely changes the way in which we worship. He'll say that, for example, to the woman in Samaria in John chapter 4. The woman at the well She'll, she'll ask him, you know, you, you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Our fathers teach us that we're to worship on this mountain, which is in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, where jo- Jacob and some of the patriarchs worship. She says, what's the answer? Where is the proper place to worship God? Jesus' answer is, uh, the day is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will not worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus makes it so it's not a geographical thing where we, we there's a place of proper worship. But rather, there's a person through whom we worship properly. Namely, through the spirit in us directing us to Christ who directs us to the Lord our God. You know. So this is the idea. And um, uh, it's good questions. I don't consider it a rabbit trail because it's getting at the you know, write up the idea of what Mark is showing us here. let me kind of draw out how Mark is showing us that. Let me narrate this as I asked just to summarize it. Jesus comes up, you know he's coming he he first he initiates the whole thing, he tells his disciples, go into the nearby village and he gives them specific directions, do this, do this, do this, go get a colt, you know, take it if anyone asks you, tell them the Lord has need of it, and everything exactly as he says. To do it all happens precisely that way, and what we notice about this is that um, uh, a few things. Is one is the colt that he's that he's, um, you know, th- there is this royal connotation to it. Uh, it was understood in that culture in Israel that uh, no one but the king could ride on the king's donkey, the king's colt, and so that's why they need an unbroken colt, one that no one's ever ridden on. And um, it it is conveying something of kingship, something royal about him. It also has that resonance with Zechariah 9. And they do it precisely as he said to do it. And they bring it back to him. And they say exactly what he told them to say. And the people let let them take the colt. And he rides on this colt. And they're saying these words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. These words come out of Psalm 118. This is why I say that they may, not be, they may be saying this to a lot of people. They may not specifically be highlighting in their minds anything about Jesus, but Mark is certainly highlighting something about Jesus. As if, At, le- at the very least, they speak better than they know. Or they may fully intend to say what they say, and, but they think that he's going to come and establish a kingdom. He is, but they're thinking differently. So those words come from Psalm 118. In verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. By the fast sacrifices with cords up to the horns of the altar. It's not exactly all the same words, but at least that that kernel of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord does derive from that psalm. And so you can see they're they're using language from their religious literature, uh, from the psalms and from other places, to express these praises of the Lord. And he comes, and there's this really shocking surprise then as you come to the end of the, the triumphal entry. Just read these words and see how anticlimactic they are. Verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem, He went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. His entrance into the city, his actual coming into Jerusalem, does not is not it doesn't correspond to his approach to jerusalem right he's approaching and the people are putting the palm branches down and putting the coats down maybe this kind of drives out what you were saying is how does the sudden shift when he actually gets into jerusalem you know nobody seems to think one way there's nobody even around it's like he walks into an empty temple it's late and he you know gets out but there's this sense of like the city's not really rep- ready to receive their king people in Jerusalem don't recognize him the way that he's recognized on the, on the way up. So there's this kind of anticlimax in the way that Mark presents the triumphal entry. So even I think even to call it the triumphal entry is a bit of a misnomer in Mark's presentation. It maybe is appropriate in Matthew and, and, and Luke, but in Mark it's not. Uh, it's very much an anticlimactic entry into Jerusalem. Um, but that's part of the part of the message that Mark is driving at. There's this would, and so this is where the fig tree comes in. It's like an enacted parable. Prophets often did this. They would, they would uh, you think of um, Ezekiel. Ezekiel, for instance, uh, the prophet was told to lay naked, probably like in a loincloth, lay naked on his side for, you know, some uh, hundreds of days. I can't remember the precise number of days. It was to correspond to the days of a siege, and he was to build, like, siege works against this, you know, sandcastle version of Jerusalem. And it was an active parable. The people were to understand, okay, here's a prophet. He's doing something weird. And every day, it's not like he spends like 24 hours straight. But every day he goes and his job is to lay down and, you know, play this game of siege against Jerusalem. And the people are to walk by and be like this strange guy. But then if they're attuned to the fact that he's a prophet and thinking about it, they're to understand, okay, he's prophesying about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And the other prophets do these enacted parables in different ways too. Hosea has one of the most remarkable where he's told to marry a prostitute. And uh, it's a picture of her unfaithfulness becomes a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Jesus does an enacted parable in in a very similar way here. Notice how how the narrative goes. He's hungry on the following day and he sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Now, to understand this, it's helpful to understand a bit about fig trees in that culture. There is early fruit that a fig tree would produce that would come before the leaves. Normally, you wouldn't eat the early fruit. You'd wait for the fruit to ripen. But people who are native to the land might have a regular habit of eating that early fruit. If they're hungry and they, just, they need something to, to, you know, we stop at a convenience store, they stop at a fig tree, grab the early fruit, have a bite, satiate their hunger. That's the idea. So he sees the leaves from a distance, and he expects to come. And he's going to find this early fruit. And he finds none. And so he curses, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, this is where the interpreters, interpreters who aren't firmly rooted in a belief that Scripture is true, who, are, who think it's like just free for all, we can interpret however we want, secular, unbelieving interpreters will say, gee, you know, he had this really bad temper tantrum. This, looks, this doesn't reflect very well on him. But interpreters who approach the text as if as the word of God recognize, look, there's something more than meets the eye. And Mark cues us in when the disciples heard it, and then they're going to come back to Jesus. Peter's going to remember this later. We, you know, Jesus having a temper tantrum is not really doesn't fit with his pers- his character as Mark's developed it. A better solution is to say, huh, there's something about this fig tree that has to do with what else is going on. The way, one of the other ways we know it is the way Mark sandwiches these things between the two fig tree narratives, right? So you have the fig tree cursed, the temple cleansed, the fig tree cursed. And the temple is really strategic, really crucial in the narrative uh, as it unfolds. So we we ought to think as interpreters, I bet the fig tree has something to do with the temple. And then try to put it together and figure out what it is. So... Jesus curses the fig tree and then we, we leave off that if you were, if this were a chapter in a novel there's a cliffhanger go to the next chapter we'll come back to the fig tree after that but we, we are clued into that there's some kind of relationship between this and what follows by the return to the fig tree issue but that's the whole situation he comes to the fig tree it's, it's in leaf it ought to have fruit it doesn't have fruit from a distance it looks like a, a tree that would produce fruit up close upon inspection it doesn't Okay. What are we doing in the narrative? We're viewing Jerusalem and the temple from a distance, then we're coming close and we're inspecting. Okay? So from a distance, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and people are honoring him as king. We come in and it's just this empty place. No one's there to greet their king. We're going to go back out. Let's do this again. Okay, from a distance, we're going to come to the temple. And, and, uh, and Okay, well, the temple, that's where things are happening. Maybe he just came too late in the evening. And if he comes in the day, things will be... Things will be good. And he comes in the temple, and what do we see? He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And the the sense that the idea here, I mean, some of these things were necessities, right? That people would be coming to offer the sacrifices as prescribed by the law. And so they had to, sometimes they, they wouldn't, especially the poor, would not have an animal, and so there's options for them to sacrifice a pigeon in the various offerings. So they'd have, have a way to procure those things. Or they'd, if they, maybe they don't have flocks of sheep. Maybe they're very poor and they need, to, they need to get a lamb without blemish. So there has to be some sort of way in which to procure those things. But the way in which they're doing it upsets Jesus. It frustrates Jesus. I, I think the most likely situation is that the... Um, the religious leaders and the priests are using this as a way to enrich themselves, take a little off the top and to, and to take advantage of the poor especially, but they're, it's not proper worship of God. They've turned the wor- worship of God into an industry and a business. And that's very, very... Uh, it's not something that's open. You could imagine it by application uh, compared to today. There are all kinds of cottage industries around writing devotional literature and writing biblical commentaries and so on and so forth. And People should be... Re- Remunerated for their labors, especially when you know you put ten years of research into writing a commentary, it makes sense why those things would cost a lot of money. But on the other hand, you know that then there's there's a way of you know packaging the thing just right, not really offering anything new, not really putting a whole lot of labor in it, but putting the right person's name on it, and then you could just you know sell millions of copies of this book, and it's just you know repackaged uh, biblical stuff to enrich myself is the idea. That whole cottage industry exists today, and you have to step back and ask, does that please the Lord? I'm sure it does not. And you think, you compare that with what he says to his disciples, you received freely, freely give. In other words, they're not to go out and remember those instructions when he sends out the 12 and the 72. They're not to go out and use their position of ministry in order to kind of enrich themselves. So, That would be analogous. Our experience today would be analogous to what they're doing, I think, in the temple then. They're using the established religion that God has given them by which they might come into communion with him in order to better better themselves and make themselves rich. Yeah. so Jesus' disciples are told to go out and preach it openly there are times where he does not preach it openly prior to his going to the cross because there's no sense in preaching the gospel before you've accomplished the things that that actually makes it good news I've given other explanations there are a lot of them but that's one part of it He, he did not come to go out and have a big ministry that makes himself rich It's not gospel. It's not good news until he does what is necessary to make it good news, which is he has to die. Not an accident. He has to go to the the cross. He knows that. So that's his primary mission. The disciples, for us, we are called to go and share the gospel boldly. So what the disciples are told, they're not told to sort of hide it and keep it secret. They're actually told to let their light shine. But there is a response when, when they are rejected by people in the villages to just move on not to you know not to set up this debating forum where they're gonna they're gonna spend years trying to convince people to change their minds but just to move on to the next town and proclaim the gospel and proclaim the gospel i think maybe does that clear up some confusion with that yeah
1: mm. the guy.
0: yeah i see what you're saying so what what you're saying is that what we, we need pastors and teachers and and uh i'm sorry to be yeah in that context where Jesus sends out the twelve, he tells them not to take any possessions, that they, their, their needs will be provided for them. As people, as they go out and preach the gospel, people will put food on the table before them, people will give them a, 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 a roof to rest their head under, or in that context you might go on top of the roof and sleep there, but there's no rain. It, it doesn't matter. So the, the point is, is the, they're going to be provided for, and they're to consider that their wages from Christ himself, who's their master, who's their employer. And he's able to pay them in whatever way he wants to. And so he says, I'm going to provide you with what you need to accomplish this task. And we can apply that same thing in our context without going so overboard. We don't have to go so overboard as to say, all right, every Christian, let's go sell everything we have and go and live like nomads. I don't think that that's the appropriate application of that text in our context. I think what we are to do is to not kind of furiously enter into this rat race that exists in our world where we're, we're trying to pursue earthly riches by any means possible including uh, sometimes in the Christian world is, is this little cottage industry of book making and, and um, uh, just repackaging biblical material in a way where I can, I can create a revenue stream for myself. That happens a lot. Um, but rather we're to go out freely sharing the gospel um, depending upon the support that God provides through the various means, whether it's through a church supporting a pastor, or uh, through legitimate, um, you know, publishing and, and selling of books that are, you know, that, anyway. So th- these are all legitimate, but we don't go out with the intention of saying, "What am I? How c- how can I really make myself? Um, how can I enrich myself or lift my my star, or you know, gain a following of that sort?" So that's where like, the general, we generalize it and apply it in our context while still, while, while trying to retain the spirit of the command. Um, does that make sense? I understand. To the 12 and to the 72, in that particular instance, he said that to them because he was showing in their context that no matter what God commands us to do, if God, told, if God commanded me, and I, I'm not saying that he does, you know, communicates this way to me, but if, if I went out of here and got a vision like Paul on the road to Damascus and God said, go to, um, go to the jungle in Congo right now, I would have to trust that he's going to provide what I need for that moment. He doesn't do that uh, as, a, as the ordinary course of, of calling us in this context. Um, What we do want to say is recognize that in our context there's a difference between support for once you know receiving support just like the the the, in their historical context those 12 sent out they received appropriate support from the people who received them in the towns a place to stay food to eat our missionaries our pastors they we receive appropriate support from a congregation that pays us enough to, to subsist or from uh, you, you know maybe a professor at a seminary through the donations of their dom- denomination whoever funds that school, all of those things appropriate levels of support but if they but then we have other examples in our culture where I can you know we could list names of people who if they put their name on a book and they have they can even have a ghostwriter write it and they present it as biblical literature or devotional material you'll see it on the gas station book racks and they'll sell like hotcakes and that person will be a New York Times bestseller and be a millionaire. And their whole reason to be is to enrich themselves not to share the gospel, not to spread the good news. That latter version in our context would be an inappropriate way to go about Christian ministry. And there are all kinds of there's a sliding scale of which where we evaluate ourselves along those along that spectrum. But here what we're doing is we're working on application. We're taking those texts, what Jesus commanded them in their context, in the way in which they would be supported. And we're saying, in our context, in our normal experience in 21st century America, how would we expect to receive support? And I think as you reflect upon life growing up in the Philippines, you would, you would say it would even be different in that context than it is in the United States. A missionary sent out by a church in the Philippines might expect a different way of receiving support and care. Is that I mean, I hope that helps a little bit and I can talk more afterward. Let me just bring everything to a close here. What we see here in this text is that things come together is that I talk about the fig tree being in, in an enacted parable is the, fig, the fruitless fig tree that from a distance looks like it ought to have some fruit is like the temple, which from a distance, the activity looks like there's a lot of good religious activity going on. But upon closer inspection, this is not a place that is consistent with what God would have it be doing. They've turned it into a a place of trade, a place of business and commerce, and it ought to be, we'll pick up with this next week, it ought to be a house of prayer, not just for the Jewish people, a house of prayer for all nations. It's not that. It's not what it ought to be. So Jesus is is confronting the people, and he's challenging the leaders, and that's one of those steps in the link that you were talking about that's going to lead to his death even though it's fully, you know, within God's, you know, he knows long beforehand that this is what he had us do. But in terms of the, the events that lead to him going to the cross, this is one of the things that's going to lead the chief priests and scribes to say, we need to get this guy gone. We need to, we need to get rid of him. So that's kind of the flow of that narrative that I want people to, I want all of you to appreciate. Stephen. So but- yeah right that's right that's right So the, that's right so the old covenant temple worship that was prescribed is, it's become like a fruitless tree that and it's, it's gonna it's gonna be brought to an end um, and be, be replaced with a new new kind of worship that is in the spirit directed to Christ uh, mediated through Christ alone and um, in the context of a of a congregation of a church, so. final questions or comments before we close in prayer yeah yeah yeah. And Mark will draw attention to some of the things that they do in order to, you know, how at the beginning of the week they want, it's already in their hearts they want to get rid of them, but there's there's problems with why they can't. And some of the political behind-the-scenes maneuvering that they take in order to um, ensure that they achieve their objective. Well, I don't I'm not sure, Um, I have to look back at the the kind of the expectations, because Passover is still a um, a few days away, so people will be making their journeys already, but not necessarily going directly to the temple. But Jesus is, because the the temple is really a focus of what he's doing, is kind of showing the passing of that era of worship, and the, the, the arrival of this new era. uh, Of worship that is directed um, at the one who is the true tabernacle of the Lord, the true temple. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would would, uh, impress your word upon our minds um, this morning and as we go forth from here. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to worship you together, corporately. That you would prepare us to receive your word That from your word, Lord, you would teach us to pray and that you would teach us to depend upon you and to seek that relationship with you that is available to us through Christ. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.